Hey guys, what's going on? It's your host, Drew Sample here. Thanks again for tuning in. Um, I'm happy to bring you another episode with my good buddy, Charles Hugh Smith. Um, if you're not aware of who Charles is, he's an author, blogger, and entrepreneur. Uh, he's the chief writer for his site, of ofTwoMinds.com. Um, he started his site in 2005 and has been listed as number seven in CNBC's top alternative financial sites. Uh, his commentaries are featured in a number of sites, including Zero Hedge, The American Conservative, and Peak Prosperity. Um, and if you guys haven't had a chance, check out Charles's new book. If you're a fan of what Charles and I have to say, I like his books. Uh, he's been releasing some mini books. He's written a bunch of books. Um, but the, the newest one is Inequality and the Collapse of Privilege. So give that a, che a check. And if you want to join, I actually created a Facebook group for Charles. So it's the Of Two Minds Facebook group. So there's a link in the show notes for that if you want to join the group. And there's also a link if you want to listen to all of all of the old episodes that Charles and I have recorded together. And then if you want to download any of his audiobooks and start a brand a free Audible account, they are available. So you get one audiobook per email address. So if you want to listen to them both for free, just use two email addresses, guys. Hack the system. I don't. I don't mind. Um, before we get started with the show, I do want to talk about my affiliates. So, as I've stated, so for anybody that knows me and has hung out with me, um, I have not been drinking, and I've been eating really healthy. I'm down. I think I'm down just over twenty pounds in thirty days. So what I've actually been doing, I've been doing a little mixture of both uh, a program called Whole30 and I've been exercising with DDP Yoga. None of those are affiliates, but um, a lot of what got it started is my, my good friend, Kevin Geary, um, I, Tom, Tom Domrez and I did a podcast with him and Kevin has a great program and some great courses if you're interested in losing weight or just kind of rebooting your body. Um, I highly recommend this course. I I bought it and I've been enjoying the progress. And there's there's so there's just so many great resources in there. And there's a lot of support. Um, so if you guys want to click on the link in the show notes um, or even on the side of the website, you can uh, you can start your 90 day reboot. And there's some consulting and everything. And he does coaching and everything else like that. So check it out. Um, if you guys, so it is nursery stock season. If you guys want to get com Comfrey Bocking 4 or 14, or if you guys want to get some, some American Elderberry Pack, an American Parasimon or Parasimon, I don't know how to say that stuff, uh, 10 pack of plums, Antonaka, Navaka apples, Bartlett pear, Beyond Organic Craft pork. Oh, man, he has some. Oh, no, he just says read more. He's sold out of pork. Black Locust, Comfrey Bocking 14, Bocking 4. Um, what else does Mr. Burns have on the his farmstead site? Jinko Bilboa. I have no idea what it is, but it looks delicious on the on the site. Um, some hybrid chestnuts, some hybrid hazelnuts, mulberries, uh, Nanking cherry, or Norway spruce. So... You can get 10 packs off the site. Um, if you want to save 10% and get free shipping, I highly, highly recommend you use code word sample. And uh, so that not only does it help you get some cheaper, 
cheaper stuff, but it also helps me helps the show. So check that out if you guys are into if you guys want to get that stuff and you want to start a little mini food forest in your yard or in, on your property or somebody else's property. I think uh, naturesimagefarm.com is a great resource. So use code word sample, save 10%. Um, if you want to, so there's still some stuff left on new farm supplies. So Grant Schultz, talk to me. I'm going to be doing a podcast again with him soon. We're going to be talking about something new that's coming out. So right now, uh, you can still get 10-foot deer dominator fence posts, um, some fiberglass fence posts, a staff fix, uh, have no idea. It's some. I think it's something to do with fencing. You, you farm setters with animals will know what it is. Staffix X eighteen I. I'm not sure what it is. Or Staffix six Joel. I'm. I'm not sure, guys. But check out newfarmsupply.com. He's got some fence posts left. He's got some stuff that you can use to electric electrify your uh, fence posts. Some VersaTube tree guards, uh, and then some step step in posts as well for fencing and a V grafter. Everything is pretty much on sale right now as is, but if you use code word sample, you can save an additional 20% and get free shipping. Pretty awesome deal, guys. And then um, if you want to start your own podcast, so I'm a big fan of Podcast Blast Off. So I am a user. I'm friends with the owners, um, but they have great tutorials on how to start a podcast. Uh, I've been talking with the owners, and I'm going to do a nice webinar. And I'm thinking I'll, I'll try to set something up so if you guys do want to start a podcast and you listen to my show and you want to learn how I get my audio quality, I'll tell you. It's no secret. So, And I'll, I'll even walk you through the equipment I have. And, and Nathan Frazier, he's been a um, – He's one of the owners, and he's been a good friend and a, a good mentor for me in podcasting. Um, and and so if you guys check if so if you guys go to click on that link in the show notes, you can actually see um, you can actually check it out, and you'll see testimonials, and they have podcast courses, um, and it, and it and they'll tell you everything about everything that you get with getting that there. So, and then last but not least, um, if you guys want to become a profitable farmer, I highly recommend Curtis Stone's course. Um, if you're if you're getting started and you're and you, you know it's it's easy to if you want to start out in small scale farming, get overwhelmed. Um, I highly recommend his course. Curtis shares all of his secrets, which he doesn't really have secrets, but it's just how he structures his business. Um, what he does from point A to point B, there's great head cam footage and everything like that. So if you want to get the course, I talk about it in the, in, on the podcast with Charles, I paid a thousand bucks for it, but you can actually save a hundred dollars. If you click on a link in the show notes and you'll save a hundred dollars there, or you can sign up for the payment plan and you can use code word or you don't want to use code word sample, but there's two different links and you'll see them in the show notes. So if you just go to the website and click on the link for this podcast, you can see everything in the show notes. So with that being said, guys, not to be too boring, but I just gave you guys an eight minute ad. Um, so sorry about that, but it's worth it. You can always hit fast forward. I don't mind. So go up. But with that being said, guys, I really appreciate everything. I appreciate the um, I appreciate the reviews you've been giving me on iTunes. 
please keep that up. I think we're we're up to 17 still. Um, but I know it takes a while for the the reviews to post. Um, so, but just yeah, share it with your friends. I mean, don't be afraid. I I'm a hipster. I don't like to share the things I like because I'm afraid it's gonna get popular and then it won't be the same. But I promise, guys, you can share me as much as you want. I'm gonna stay the same. I'm not gonna change. So with that being said, enjoy this show. One other topic I want to discuss is, you know, like uh, one of my main things is get multiple income streams because it's really hard to make a middle class living off of one thing. Yeah. I mean, if you're a plumber or an electrician, yeah, okay. But for, you know, anything that you can't make 75 bucks an hour or something, then it's – and so if you – I kind of like would like you to talk about that, like the income streams you're developing and the, and the fact that sometimes they, they don't work out, but it's okay because you didn't devote, you know, like yeah. 100% of your resources to it. That sounds good to me. All right. Okay. Well, let's, yeah. get, let's get started. Hi, Charles. Right. <laughs> hey, hi, Drew. <laughs> I, I'm trying to not, I'm trying to get away from like, because I used to do, in, I, I think I said this last time too, I used to do the intros. Uh, I do intros twice, and it just was so it was so annoying. I don't know why I would like, and I didn't realize it until like I'd record. I'm like, well, I don't know why I didn't intro twice. I just, I just, I just did this intro, but I wasn't used to having a theme song either. So now I'm I'm getting it down. But uh, and I'm I'm digging the theme song too. Excellent, very good, very um, dynamic. Yeah, Greg made that. Greg Burns made that of uh, Nature's Image Farm. So he's like the guy. He's kind of like the co-community guy with me, Greg, because him and I got talking, and um, like we basically, I mean, him and I were the ones that pretty much, like him and Rob were doing a lot of events, but then him and I would always talk about community and stuff when we were just getting to know each other, and then when we started doing events, it just kind of spilt from there, and then it's always him and I there, but he, uh, before I knew him, he started listening to the show, and then it turns out before he was what he now he does uh he has like a he has another business with 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 flooring i think him and his dad are only one of two or four people that do it and um so he was in music before like he'd done a ton of bands and been in a bunch of bands he plays like the banjo and everything and then he goes do you want me to make you a theme song i'm like dude that'd be awesome if you made me a theme song like i'd love that because already like he's already an affiliate i get my pork from him i learned how to butcher chickens and turkeys because of him and gotten into pig butchering. And so it's, uh, it's just cool, man. It's like the podcast is bringing everything in my life that I've always wanted it to, but I just didn't know where it was going to take me, if that makes sense. And, uh, so it's, it's been, it's been really cool. So anyways, shout out to Greg for the great theme song. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, as I said in my uh, little essay, uh, to discuss our, our podcast, um, you know, like everybody talks about community, you know, pundits and all that, you know, oh, we need community. It's all like, yeah, but they never talk about how you actually do it. And so yeah. like you're, you're the podcast and showing up. I mean, I think that you did a very good description and um, that's how it is, man. You, you show up and you contribute and then 
people teach you stuff and give you stuff and you give other people stuff and then that's how it works right yeah i mean the biggest thing is like uh so this is like what we see like we just did lulu fest and lulu fest was huge um the fogels they put on uh man they had a lot of people come like we're the first pig we did so basically they took like a normal pink feeder pig and then they let it be like a pig and man do those pigs look different when you let them become normal pigs and not like keep them in like feet like just the way you know factory farming is we've we've discussed it before nobody likes it um and that the feeder pig man it had some nice looking hams on it. it ended up weighing 280 pounds um i don't think i think the hanging weight was i think like 260 and then lulu was their mothering sow but she she just wasn't weaning off um enough like basically basically like she'd have a litter of like 16 and five would make it because she'd either roll on them and kill them or she just wasn't weaning them off or she just wasn't she kind of like she was kind of towards the end and then her hip was was bugging her and nobody like nobody wants to see their animals suffer i mean not if you're in the homesteading and farming like that's not you don't you get into it to give the animals a good life not not to not to just see them as a you know as a an asset or a commodity so lulu was 520 pounds she was Whoa. huge Oh man, I her head. I mean, it looked like a cow hanging up, like a little cow hanging up in the the photos, because she's a spotted uh, an old spot. And uh, man, we went through because you when you do pigs, like the first day, like when you butcher them, you can't, like you don't you don't cut the meat that day because you gotta let rigor mortis set in and everything else like that. So the next day is when you cut it and. Um, so we had like this this old timer came out and he had done like butchering and meat cutting a lot of time in his life and he quickly worked uh the we just called it we just called him lulu jr because uh, it was just it was for her sister and he man it was cool to see that old skill i mean like because it's like i'm just learning how to how to how to basically you know cut up you know the proper way to cut up a pig and not be wasteful and this guy was just just getting the skin off and getting the lard divvied up and got the ribs and like he, he went through that really quick, and then, uh, man, there was, I mean, we had a bunch, we had a, man, we probably had at, at one time at least 12 people helping, and then there's a lot of people who, who you see are just on the outside, they're like, okay, I want to get in, and I'm not really sure on how to do it, like, because whenever you see that, if you've never been around, like, actually um, working up an animal before, it's, it's you got to take that experience in, because it's a weird experience, and it should be quite honestly it really should be and um so yeah i mean it it, it it was cool we went through about 800 pounds of pork um in less than eight hours and we and the there we did some uh she did some charcuterie with the uh with lulu and like turned one of the hams into a nice prosciutto so i don't it's just learning the skills of the old ways like stuff we talk about and that's people want to do that there's a need for it like people know that there's skills that you know, we, we talk about all the time that, that you don't necessarily have to know now. It's Now it's weird because it is kind of like a privilege to know it and a privilege to be able to do it, if that makes sense. But um, it's, you know, it's you just have to find people, like-minded people. Right. And uh, there is a market for it. Like one of my uh, one of my friends, he's got teens, uh, teenage girls. And so one of the daughters was raised a pig and that was part of like her college fund, right? Because, you know, you buy the... The, um, 
the piglet for like a, a few bucks. It's not too expensive. And then you, you know, you raise it and take care of it. And then you sell it for a lot more money, hundreds of bucks, right? Yeah. And, and if you can find somebody, if you used, you know, a organic quote, in other words, you know, you didn't have to use antibiotics or anything, um, which you usually don't in a home setting. Well, then, then, then it has a premium price. And so um, she made uh, like good money on that. And so, and it, so anyways, it's, um, there is an economic value to raising a healthy animal and then people can trust it because, you know, that's, that's one of the things um, that, that we've kind of touched on is um, part of the community economy that we're talking about. It's a matter of trust. In other words, you can't trust anything in the global supply chain. And I, I've, I've written about this that, and, and, and um, gotten a lot of feedback from people um, in the technology and, um, and related fields that they said, yeah, you know, if you get parts from that, that they, they say they're like made in Germany, but they're actually like knockoffs, you know, like uh, pirated made in China, then they fail. You know, and if these are like ball bearings in a in a um, in a very expensive piece of machinery, I mean, this is a catastrophe. So, anyways, it, it's like if you can actually know who's raising your food, then that trust level is is worth a certain amount of money. And not everybody can afford it, but a lot of people decide it's worth a little premium to know um, to to be able to buy that trust is what they're doing. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Uh... But uh, before I could I could steer this conversation, Charles, to talking about home farmsteading, all this stuff. That's not why we're here today, Charles. Why we're here for two beers. I think we need to start like we normally do. And uh, so I'm going to be honest. I'm not drinking right now. I uh, decided I have all this time to be healthy, so I'm going to try 90 days without booze. Because I tell you what, I put on most of my weight and keep most of my weight on for my uh, enjoyment of of drinking alcohol and usually the, the crappy food I eat with that. Um, so just doing, giving myself a little reset and abstaining. Um, but uh, Charles, what are you drinking tonight, sir? Yeah, well, I totally understand about the, uh, the calories in beer. I am drinking um, Kona Brewing Company uh, Longboard Island Lager because I'm, I'm in Hawaii right now. And so you know, Kona Brewing actually—they—they, they, I think they make a lot of their beer on the ma on the mainland now because they—they—they uh, they, they expanded so fast. Their their Kona uh, brewery couldn't keep up. So, um, but uh, it's a good it's a good basic um, lager, and um, so that's what I'm drinking. And I'm I, I totally understand why you're cutting back on the calories. And I, you know, it, all of us have to like juggle. You know, like we sacrifice something. And so if you like sweets, like, yeah, sure. I mean, chocolate almonds and stuff like that. Yeah, I can eat half the thing or <laughs> so we have to sacrifice something because you can't eat everything you like and, and, uh, it just doesn't work. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sorry that you're, you're <laughs> you staining, don't have to be sorry but I totally, I, I understand. And, um, so yeah, what, what we wanted to talk about today and we, um, we there were some leftover topics from last time, and one of them was like um, financial bubbles, and then the um, the other topic that uh, came up that that I want to hear you talk about is you've been delivering food, yeah, and this is like a, a you know Grubhub, and there's a, a whole a whole uh, ecology, if you will, of of companies that are 
uh, trying to become, you know, the the Twitter or Facebook of food delivery, and then there's local guys doing it, and so, and it's interesting because it's uh, to me it's something I want to hear about because it's the the interface of like these new internet-based technologies and how they impact bricks and mortar. And, and I'm going to tie it in once, once we hear your direct experience, um, then I'm going to tie it into like the way that Amazon, it makes it so you don't even have to go shopping anymore. Yeah, Prime <laughs> Now and everything. Yeah. 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 And so that's a huge impact on the economy. Like, well, who's going to go to those? Who's going to go to the stores? Who's going to pay the property taxes on those gigantic stores? You I, know, there's a lot of impact. There really is. And the, so the weird thing is, is so I, I first experienced this. Um, so the first time I had like food delivered to me, I was actually in San Diego. And that was the first time I'd heard of Prime Now. And I was like, man, Columbus is a test city. We always get this stuff early. And this guy from Indianapolis said, well, we just got it. It's awesome. I got stuff coming right now. And then um, one night, like, w we wanted to watch this UFC fight. So they had a whole menu interface. I ordered a, a grass-fed burger with a side of cheese curds and onion rings. And they, they, they brought it right to the hotel. And I didn't have to miss any fights to go get food. And I went back up and I watched it. I was like, man, this is awesome. I can't wait for it to come to Columbus. And then the first time I heard of it was was through Uber because I use Uber quite a bit when I'd go out and enjoy the breweries. So I would um, Uber sent me an email saying, hey, we're introducing this new thing called Uber Eats. And I was like, well, that's cool. So then I get on. It's very similar to the way Amazon had it. Um, we got Prime Now now, and we didn't have the restaurant feature in there yet. So I just go through and man, was it convenient to eat crappy food, Charles, especially if I had a few, <laughs> a few drinks, it's crappy, delicious food. Like it's not like we have, we have good food trucks here. So I, I've been doing that. And then I was sitting around and my buddy actually asked me if I wanted to help him like deliver flowers on Valentine's day. Cause he, uh, he's like my farming buddy and he delivers flowers, uh, for side income as well. And that's kind of like his main side gig just cause it's really consistent cash. He's 1099. And he's like, yeah, we always need help this day. Do you have access to an SUV? And I was like, yeah. And then I got to thinking, I was like, you know, why don't I, I just talked to this guy about this profit first guy about setting up like this whole bank account system for Uber drivers and everyone else. I was like, man, if, if I started driving for Uber Eats, I could write off my car insurance, write off car repair get mileage, like all this stuff. Like it gives me a lot more tax advantages for a vehicle that I wasn't using. So you and I had talked about it. So I'd applied at Uber Eats and, and I actually was trying to do Amazon because I didn't really want to drive people around. It's just, that's just not my thing. Um, and uh, Amazon said yes. And then all of a sudden they got too many drivers. And now Amazon's not offering like their flex drivers in Columbus. So I couldn't do Amazon. I waited on Uber, and then Uber, which was weird because I know a guy that drives for Uber, he has two DUIs. I know another guy that has, like, a physical control like I do, and he got it after I did, and he can drive Uber. But Uber told me, sorry, buddy, take a hike. And I was like, well, that sucks. But then I started doing research, and there's all these other courier services. So there's, like, uh, get, it's like Grubhub. There's Skip the Dishes. There's uh, DoorDash. Um, there's a lot of them. And so I ended up getting with Skip the Dishes first, and I'd never heard of it. So 
I didn't know how busy I would be, so I signed up for all these others as well, just in case. And so the first day I did it, I got approved, and I had to get these big uh, thermal bags. And, and, like, usually, like, Uber will give you this shitty bag. DoorDash does, too. It's, like, this shitty thermal bag, and they give you, like, a thermal blanket to put on top. But Skip the Dishes is like, well, no, like, you can, you know, they make you get, like, a bag for pizzas, and then they make you get a bag for... Like a big, it's it's a pretty big, like rectangular bag. It takes up most of my back seat, and man, does it keep food warm. And I'm like, you know, this isn't bad. It's a tax write-off, and actually, it's really good. I mean, I could use this for other services if I choose to use them. Like, it's it's a way better customer experience. Like, I remember when I'd order Uber Eats, people would would bring me food, and I'd be like, man, it's not even in a bag, and it's freezing outside. Like, how much how much heat did my food just lose? Did he even go, did he even take that bag to the restaurant to get it? So I was kind of turned off by a lot of people using, doing the Uber Eats. And also, there's no tip feature built into Uber Eats, and there is in Skip the Dishes. And I found that, like with Amazon Prime now, they recommend that you tip the driver five bucks, so people just probably click to do it. Because if it's there and it's convenient, then they don't have to think to tip you, and they don't have to actually pay you cash people are more likely to tip you. So that worked out too. So my first day, I go to this little Euro shop, and there's this uh, probably, I don't know, he's a Middle Eastern guy working there. And I see he's got, it's the place is dead, but he's got like six tablets there. And he's working orders, and he's working orders for all these different food delivery services. And then I go to other ones, and it's another guy who's, not, you know, not, not like a, probably a legal, you know, somebody that legally immigrated here and he's opening up his business, living the American dream. Another guy, he's got all these different tablets there. And it's, and I'm thinking like, man, like I tried so many restaurants that I didn't even know where they were because it was convenient and I could do it from my phone. And then I went to, uh, yesterday I went to this Korean barbecue joint and it was in this humongous international grocery store that I'd never even heard of. It has all this cool food from different like different countries, but Columbus is like a huge melting pot. Like we have we have people like we have like the second largest Somali population. We have a huge Korean population, like a huge like huge Moroccan. Like there's like every there's there we have a ton of of people from different nations that have immigrated here and decided to live in Columbus. And um and so there's this little Korean restaurant right in the middle of this grocery store. I had no idea it was there. And then I'm just thinking yesterday, like, what kind of if if this service wasn't available and I'm and I've been busy, man, like I worked. I think I drove for like six hours yesterday and I took home like I'm when everything's said and done, like I'm going to probably make like one hundred and twelve bucks yesterday. And then I'm going to put half of it like just half of it to save and then put aside other money for expenses and taxes and everything like that. But like, honestly, like to just sit in my car and listen to audio books and just literally go pick up food and then put it in my car and drive to somebody's house. Like it's, it's really not bad. I get great gas mileage. And, but it, it was just like how many of these restaurants would go out of business immediately if they didn't have this service? Because I guarantee, I wonder how many, and I'm going to start asking them like, how much of your business do you guys do from this? Like, just curious, like this is, it's interesting to me. So it's, um, I, I think if like, especially for some, like, there's so many different chicken. Like one guy was like a chicken and fish place, and it's in a shitty neighborhood. Like, you know where my hood is. Like we've looked at the uh, the rents in my neighborhood compared to the rest of the city. Uh, it's like in the worser part of my neighborhood, like an area I would not want to live in. 
And when you walk into this restaurant, the guy has like bulletproof glass all over the front. He hands you the food through a little hole and he's, <laughs> he's got Uber eats. He's got skip the dishes. Like, I mean, even this guy's doing that. So in reality, like a, an area where he probably pays really limited rent to run a business and he has bulletproof glass, he could probably make pretty good living from that. I don't know if he will. I don't know if he'll stay open from the, from past the health inspections, but that's, that's his problem. But it, it just made me think about everything. Like Columbus is like a big, small town. And I mean, I live right in the middle of the city and I've driven all over the city delivering food. And I've, I've gone to some, some different neighborhoods that I did not know were there. Some were nice. Some of them, a lot of them weren't. And everybody's using this service and everybody's nice. They're just normal people. And, 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 uh, a lot of it, and it's interesting. I've been paying attention to who doesn't tip and who does tip, and that's always fun too. A little game I play in my head, and what time of the night and what time of the day you're least li less likely to get tipped. Um, well, let's let's talk about that because you know when I was uh, building houses, I would get um, you know house is a major investment, but I did notice uh, there's definitely a difference between like what we might call working class or lower middle class, and then and then middle. Middle class and upper middle class and then yeah. actual wealth wealthy you know yeah and so the the I, i'm very curious like so okay in that spectrum who tips most consistently and who's like cheap and doesn't doesn't even tip you so the people that tip the best are usually like people that are like millennials who are living in like uh an area that's not so nice so it's like they have more money because they're they're like they're it's basically they live in the city it's not necessarily the nicer area. I don't know how much the rent is, um, but like there was, it's usually like a newer area. Like somebody in my neighborhood, like I actually delivered something. The guy tipped me like five bucks. Uh, yesterday I went into German Village, which is like an older. It's it's been gentrified for a while. I mean, it's like a nice spot now. People go there. Like your shit gets broken into there because people know that there's nice shit there, so they go there to break into it. Um, and it's like it's in the city, so that's the police don't have time to patrol the neighborhood. Um, so that chick tipped me a dollar. Um, it's it's also interesting too, like when it when people say they're gonna tip in cash, a lot of times so they won't say that they're tipping me, and then they tip me cash. So that's always nice. Um, but mainly, you know, older people that usually tip well that live in the city. A lot of people that live in areas that you assume to be more expensive, like they don't, they haven't tipped me well. Like I haven't been to like a, a lot of the suburbs yet to really experience that. But when it comes to within the city, people that live in lower income housing usually tip a lot better. Yeah, it's interesting that that mirrors my experience that the worst uh, clients or customers in my mind are the aspirational upper middle class, you know, like in other words, people, <laughs> yeah, people that are trying to look bigger than they are, you know, and they, um, and so they think part of being wealthy is to be like an asshole. <laughs> yeah. And actually the, the actual wealthy people that I've run into, and I'm not talking like, you know, billionaires or anything, but just people who have family money and, you know, um, really nice properties and stuff like that. I've never had any problem with them. I mean, they—they're not the demanding type. That's the um, the upper middle class. And so, I don't know. Uh, anyways, may maybe if you if if you deliver to the 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 true wealth, then maybe you know they'll tip decently. But it, it, I've also found that same thing that the lower middle class, 
if we want to just kind of put it in the spectrum, you know, is more uh, generous and, and thoughtful than a lot of the upper middle class. And, you know, I, I want to tie that into this thing about bubbles because, you know, a lot of the financial bubble, um, the impact, it's, it's a generational thing. And this is part of why it's, um, there's a lot of inequity and, and unfairness in the whole thing is that if you're a millennial, you're out. You know, you you know, you're you're out of luck because the bubble expanded, you know, before you had a chance to buy anything. Yeah. And so and so then there's these like, um, you know, the baby boomers like myself. Um, some of the people didn't buy. Some of them got um, bankrupted by a medical emergency, or you know, there's a lot of, a lot of sad stories in in boomers that are that that, um, you know people think well you should be well off because you guys skated you know you got you got to buy houses for 50 grand and now they're worth 200 grand or whatever that's not everyone um, some of them got laid off yeah. some of them it, yeah it's a big generation you can't make a generalization like that right but but in general if if people sort of did what the right quote what they were what they were expected to do which was buy a house and kind of hang on to it then they've they're they're they've made bank, right? They've made bank. And so they're sitting on a couple hundred grand or, or, you know, even 500 grand if you're on the left or right coast. I mean, you're sitting on a ton of money that is inaccessible to the millennial generation because, you know, who, how many millennials can afford to buy a $500,000 house? And then do you want to make all those sacrifices? Like, okay, you're never going to, you know, own a nice car. You know, you're going to struggle to save money for your kids. I mean, it's just like on and on and on. And so um, I, I think that what what bothers me and a, and a lot of other people about the financial bubbles is it, it, it's, it's only rewarding people who bought the assets basically in the early 90s or the late – the early 2000s, right, when stuff was still cheap, when housing was cheap, when stocks were cheap and, and uh, bonds were cheap, blah, blah, blah. And so um, there's a lot of social injustice built into this, and yet the status quo opinion of um, you know the, the the mass media presents all these bubbles as oh that's great you know like um, you know the fact that real estate goes up like and rents go up five or ten percent a year hey that's 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 great it means the economy's doing well and it's all like yeah but unfortunately you know the for like about 90 between 80 and 95 percent of the working population their wages their net income you know their adjusted for inflation income has stagnated for like 10 to 15 years and so it's not a great thing that housing and rents and health care and higher education and everything is soaring and it's all because of these financial bubbles and so um I think the greatest thing that could happen is the collapse of all these bubbles and a lot of a lot of wealth would be lost but it would we'd end up with a more equitable society after we threw you know after maybe 30 trillion dollars got blown off. Yeah, I uh I I agree like I we got student loans, we got the new the new car bubble which is like the uh which I remember you and Gordon talking about a couple years ago. And Gordon was telling some story about how one of his wealthy buddies sent out his 18-year-old son to go get a car just to, just to like so he could get the experience. He ended up getting some car he knew he couldn't afford that he was probably going to have to bail him out on because they were just approving everybody to get a new car. 
And it's, uh, I mean, we have all these bubbles. We have an echo bubble in real estate. We have, I mean, financial, man, the student, the college bubble, man, when that bursts, I don't know what a lot of, I think a lot of universities are going to close. I just, I, I think it's like, I look at Youngstown State, which the bubble burst on Youngstown State when the bubble burst on Youngstown. And now they're creating, like, my stepdad actually got a job in Youngstown in, a, like, an area where there's supposed to be no jobs. We got laid off in Columbus where there's supposed to be a ton of jobs because, basically, they needed my stepdad's skill set to help them stay alive as a university because, you know, look, people don't want to come to Youngstown, but if we can offer them good online degrees, they can get in, they can enroll and we can get their money. And But even then, man, I mean, with, with I mean, look at me with farming. I mean, I, I paid thousand dollars for a course that i mean i could spend fifty thousand dollars and go to ohio state and not learn a quarter of what i learned in this thousand dollar course so i just think that, that college is going to be uh useless soon and you've written about it too in your nearly free university book yeah absolutely that uh the future is obviously in apprenticeships and there's a book um coming out by some academics and um, it's called uh, reskilling America and and what their basic point is something that we all recognize which is you know for the last probably 40 years parents have been pushing their kids go to college you know get a four-year degree right doesn't matter what you get it in it's it's like a ticket to a better life and and so one of the consequences of this obsession with a four-year degree is that um, America as a whole abandoned its trade schools. I mean, there's there's very little funding. There's few slots for people to get in. There's no apprenticeship programs, except if you're in a union. And then uh, the authors of the book compare this to Germany, where like it's it's a more rational system where over half the half the high school graduates enter a structured apprentice program kind of like the equivalent of, of, of our uh, community college programs, but with an on-the-job training, and then you get like a certification, you know, that the student is um, accredited, which is the way it should work. In our system is the school is accredited, so the student can not learn jack, but then um, they, get a, they get a degree, but then the employer knows that, you know, the student themselves weren't really accredited. The degree is worthless. Because yeah. they don't know whether the student has any skills or not. So Germany has a better system. You, the student has to pass a test in, in like being a chef or a cook or a sous chef or a barber or, you know, all these trades we need, you know, plumbing, electrical. So then the employer goes, well, this, this young person went through a structured apprenticeship and they passed the test. Of, they actually possess the skills I need them uh, to possess, to go out and, and do the work I need and to make me money. And so, like, we've just totally blown it and we've squandered trillions of dollars, literally, you know, cuts a, you know, it's a trillion point two or something like that in student loans and on, on worthless degrees, you know, like gender studies or, you know, sociology. I mean, there's no demand for this, for that kind of knowledge. And I'm all for it if you want to learn it. I mean, I got my degree in philosophy. And, and I will argue that that is, you know, technically worthless because no one's going to go, oh, wow, I'm looking for a, a guy with a degree in philosophy. <laughs> but <laughs> it's all like, yeah, to drive Uber, right? Or, you know. But you, uh, you went to school for an education. 
that was the thing. You didn't go to school to get a job. Yeah, well, and I, as I've as I've mentioned before, I was working my way through college with a in uh, construction, so I was actually getting a whole other education, you know. So Absolutely. that when I exited, I I had like a huge amount of uh, construction skills, you know. So the degree in philosophy was like a bonus. Um, but anyways, I, I think your point is, it's um, well, it's an excellent point because we need to restructure our our entire educational system and strip out all this all the money, you know, like forty thousand bucks for a online degree are you kidding me that costs the school like 300 bucks yeah. it should cost 500 you know honestly and 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 like my thing i always say is we should accredit the student not the school it doesn't we don't we don't care what the school claims but our system is oh well the school's accredited so the degree from the school is supposed to have meaning but if you don't test the student's actual working knowledge then the employer can't rely on the degree and that's why employers you know it's like a degree so what you know i mean maybe the government still cares because they don't you know they have a different standard but uh the the private sector it's like well show me that you have actual working skills but you're going to have to do that outside of your degree because your degree is worthless yeah i 100 percent agree and, and it's like i, I remember I was at this bachelor party and there's this cool guy. He was a doctor and I I wanted to know. I was like, "How much debt do you have from your um from your degree?" And I think he said something like $300,000 or something ridiculous. Yeah. Huge. And it's and it's and it, it's it goes like kind of deeper like so the, the whole reason why universities start charging more is because students had access to more money. Precisely. And then so if you look at it like uh we look at our healthcare system, right? Like our healthcare system is so expensive. Why is it so expensive? Because our doctors have $300,000 worth of debt that they have to pay off. So they're going to charge X amount of money. Whereas, man, being a doctor, being a lawyer, I don't understand why that doesn't ha why that's not a trade school. Like I think it used to be a trade school back in the day. I don't know. I'm pretty yeah. sure for lawyers it was. I'm not sure on doctors, but I, you know, being a doctor is just like, I mean, being a doctor and, and being a surgeon and being a butcher is not that different in a weird way, except one's alive and one's not. I'm pretty sure surgeons practice on dead pigs. So, you know, it's, it's, it's like, it sounds funny, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's true in a lot of ways. And I, it's so weird. Like I, I always, and it's weird too, because for a long time, like people used to really trust doctors and I think, because I mean, it's it's interesting to think about, but like these these bubbles. Well, there is a, I mean, there's a hospital bubble too. I mean, there's definitely a healthcare bubble, and right, and it's and there. Are, I feel like all these bubbles are connected. Um, right, and you you just mentioned the one connection, which is when you pres when you create super cheap money then what you do is you create a bubble because um, you enable people to borrow money that they would not been, have been able to before. And so, in other words, if we, and I've proposed on, on my blog, if we went back to cash in our healthcare system, what would that do? Well, it would drop the price dramatically because you would have no customers. People would just 
that this is all I have. I can only pay cash, right? Yeah. And so this, and so the prices would go back to where the prices that you can find in Thailand or India. In other words, instead of one hundred twenty thousand dollars for like heart surgery, it would be like eight eight grand because that's the true price without a without um, cheap money um, inflating the system, just like housing. You know, it's like, well, why is how why are houses that used to cost like a hundred grand now two hundred grand, three hundred grand, four hundred grand? Well, it's because mortgage money has has um, has uh, declined. The interest rates declined so much that that now you can people can actually borrow three hundred thousand. In the past, it was like, are you kidding? I can barely borrow thirty thousand. You know, when when interest yeah. rates were ten percent, right? And so. And then, and then the other point that I'd like to make is the thing about these bubbles is based on cheap money is it's the closer you are to the money spigot and, and, and our society and our economy, that's the credit spigot. The more you can borrow at a lower rate of interest than anybody else, you automatically are going to be wealthy. There's no, there's no other possible output of that system except – those closest to the money spigot become wealthier and wealthier. And so for me, I look at like, oh, well, we've got rising wealth and income inequality. It's like, well, that's the only possible outcome of the system we have. Because if I can borrow $10 million at a half a percent interest, like a corporation or Mark Zuckerberg or whatever, well, then I can go buy stuff that that's yielding three and a half percent like a treasury bond or you know a, a, a 120 unit apartment building in seattle or something like that and then i'm instantly making like two and a half percent for doing nothing i didn't even have to put money down i borrowed all the money and paid cash because i could get the money for like a half a percent or one percent or one and a half percent and so i'm i'm skimming like you know a million uh, a year net just from being close to the money spigot. And so then an average person, well, number one, we're paying four and a half or five for the mortgage. Um, and maybe we're paying, you know, 12% on the credit card or 20% if we don't have such great credit. And so um, we're paying, we're basically paying more of our income than, than, than the super wealthy are. And so that as asymmetry, you know, that, that's the asymmetry that's built into our system. And so once you make credit the core of your whole economy, then those people who can borrow unlimited sums at, at really low interest rates are only going to get wealthier because they can buy all the income-producing assets. And the rest of us, are, are there's no way we can compete. And so, you know, in, in really hot areas like, uh, well, like San Diego where you were or, or parts of L.A. or the Bay Area – you know, it's like, or Manhattan, or parts of Minneapolis, or parts, you know, parts, parts of New of, Jersey, even I think near Dallas. Yeah, Dallas, yeah, Dallas too. Yeah, New Jersey. At, then um, it's like, well, then people, regular people, go out and they bid, a, you know, a sum that's unbelievable for some house, you know, five hundred and sixty thousand or something. You know, they overbid. Well, then somebody else just snaps it up. Because they can borrow basically for almost nothing and they can borrow cash. So the normal person can't compete. And that's part of what drives the bubbles is the, the lower the interest rate, then the, um, the, the higher the price the, of the asset, right? Because the super 
wealthy can just borrow a min sums. And it makes sense. Like if I could borrow at one and a half percent, like a hundred million, and I could buy something yielding two and a half percent, I'm skimming a one percent for yeah. nothing. And, and that that's not much if you're if it, we're talking about ten grand. But if you're talking about a hundred million, well, man, that's a million bucks. Yeah. For doing nothing. Yeah. And so that's the that's the problem with the bubbles we have is that it it, it locks out the ninety five percent, and it and it enriches the the maybe the top five percent at most. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. And and something I was thinking about when we were talking about real estate, my buddy, um, we get him on the podcast, but him and his wife, they're in real estate but in the foreclosure business, and apparently things have really slowed down in Ohio, but they're really picking up in New Jersey. So I don't know if the slowdown in Ohio is like kind of a, a symbol for something coming in. So yeah, so you know the the foreclosure business I guess is picking up in New Jersey, and I just wonder if I feel like things always start to take place in the Midwest and then they trickle out to the East and West, um, like before the bubble bursts on the left and right coast, it starts to go in the middle. I don't know if that's true. I haven't I'm, I haven't been alive that long to to really observe, but I, I man I just with interest ra- rates raising now I just don't see this real estate bubble lasting much longer. How and we actually talked about it before because I asked you like if you had to if you had to say a day a year what year would you be and you said either 2016 or 2017 it's going to start to go, um, and. So yeah, so here we are, and I don't think the bubble. I think the bubble is going to be bursting real soon on real estate. I would think so. I mean, in a lot of places, it's it's been supported by Chinese money because, uh, you know, China has created like thirty trillion dollars in in new credit in like the last decade. I mean, it's a major chunk of money, and we have to remember that you know the. Um, you know, per person, right? That's per capita, we call it, or per person. The the U.S. income per capita is something like 40,000, 45,000. And in China, it's like 4,500. So, you know, certain areas of China are super rich and there's a ton of people driving Maseratis. That would be like Shanghai and, and Beijing, right? These uh, megalopolises. There's a lot of wealth that's been created, you know, um, with the property bubble in China on, along the coast, but you know, like uh, hundreds of millions of people are still poor in the interior in the West. So we have to kind of remember that about when we talk about China. But the the super wealthy in China, or the the, the people who've skimmed or scammed, you know, a, a million bucks, they're desperate to get the money out of China because they know the bubble is popping in China. So they don't mind overpaying in in Vancouver. And then now that Vancouver has a transaction tax, then they're moving to Toronto, and they're they're moving down to, um, you know, Seattle and Portland. I mean, there's there's massive property bubbles um, in in Washington and and uh, Oregon, and then you know they're also buying you know huge tracts of land in like Detroit and stuff like that. So they're they're just trying to find a home for their money in North America. And I would do the same thing in their shoes, right? Because they're looking at a devaluation or capital controls. So a lot of people think the property bubble in the U.S. won't pop until the Chinese either run out of money <laughs> or, you know, that the government 
you know, stomps on um, capital controls and basically makes it very difficult to get money out of the out of China. So I, I it, a lot of people are looking at oh well the second half of 2017. You know, I don't know. You know, I would say the ultimate crisis is probably more like 2021 or 2022. And so we sense. might, yeah. But I mean, you know, I don't know. I'm not much of a pro prognosticator. I mean, you know, I'm always thinking this, this, this bubble can't keep expanding. Yeah, and yet it does. They find a way. They <laughs> yeah. find a way. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, millennials, you know, people around your age, it's a, it's a, it's a terrible decision. What do you do? You want to wait for the bubble to pop and you've been waiting for five years already. And now you've got a, a second or third kid and the house that you could have bought for 200 is now 300. I mean, it's it's like, well, then a lot of people just cave in and go, man, I'm never going to have a house. I'm just going to pop for the 300. I'm going to go ahead and be a debt surf because otherwise, you know, I'm just going to be a renter my whole life. And so that's that's the uh, the another downside to bubbles. You know, it, it forces everybody to join the bubble, and then and then we're then we're basically all at risk. Yeah, I I think this is going to be my plan. And this is going to tie us back into the other thing we wanted to talk about, Charles, so we don't forget. Um, so my plan as a millennial, somebody that's that's uh, been well above the average salary um, the last two years, but now I'm becoming a, a multiple-streamed income, self-employed entrepreneur. And so my plan is to make good income this year, Show show steady show, show steady revenues through my taxes and bookkeeping and the way I'm handling my bank accounts. So when I go to a bank to get a mortgage to buy my house, I think I do want to buy my house. I think once I think it, it would be cool to year three, my buddy pays has all of his money back that he put into this house that I rented it. Like sure, people could say, Well, you would have bought it from him back then. You know, think about how much you would have reduced your rent. But also at the same time, it's like, you know, I know how much my buddy wants for the house, but it, I mean, this has been a good investment for him, and I'd like it to be a good investment for him. Like, I'm not, I'm not ready to buy a house, and uh, and I might not even in the within the next year, but I could buy my house, and I know the the price amount that he he uh, he wants, and I think I told you off air, or maybe I told you on air, but it's not much. I think my mortgage here would be like two hundred dollars if I bought my house, and then. Get my house paid off through my multiple streams of income, hopefully through my aggregator. Uh, hopefully I can get my podcast more popular and make some money from that. That'd be cool. And then uh, I think I will. Well, we'll see. We'll see. I just got to keep uh, keep doing it. And uh, then, you know, finding other stuff, whether it be Skip the Dishes, some, some other entrepreneurial endeavor, but being open to it, being frisk, frugal, saving my money, uh, being lean. And then I have enough equity in this house that if I wanted to sell it, I could, or maybe I could just rent it out. But if I did sell it, maybe put it down and then maybe go buy some land in the country and homestead. I think that's kind of my plan right now. We'll see where, we'll see where I'm at in a year, Charles. I tend to change my mind quite a bit. The more books I read, the, the different I think. <laughs> well, you know, th let's, let's talk about that because, um, you know, I, I think, uh, well, two things occur to me that I, I'd ask you about. One is like, 
you know, you have the marketing skills and you're like a, a natural, like when you were selling sneakers and stuff like that, it's just like, um, it, it doesn't seem like work to you. I don't think to, to sell because you're really just sharing what you know, and then people that like it end up buying it. And so I'd, I'd be curious if you could formalize this um, idea we talked about where you know a lot of people raising vegetables and then you know people in the, in the restaurants and cafes in Columbus. And if you could be the broker to connect these two and then um, take a, you know, a commission, which is the standard way we, you know, standard way we pay people who arrange buyers and sellers, then could that be uh, oh, like yeah. a, a, a business and another income stream? Definitely. Yeah, that's the plan. So that's the aggregator. So I think once I have food to sell, it's going to be a lot easier to go to restaurants and say, go to chefs and say, here's my product. You want it right now? I'm going there. And I feel like I'm, I think I feel that they think I'm wasting their time because I'm talking to them about hypothetical product. So that's when I was like, you know, I could be hitting the pavement and wearing out these chefs, or I could just focus on helping farmers grow salad mix. Cause I know that's what, it, that's what I'm going to, that's what I'm going to sell. Focus on getting, maybe getting microgreens going because it's, there's good margin in that. And it's, if I just focused on two products, um, I help other farmers get their stuff going, get, get what little space I have set up going. And then once I have the product, I mean, I got the time I can go out, I can hit the pavement, I can drop off samples and I don't think it'll be hard to sell. I think it's hard to sell something without a product, man. And, and I did this, I did this two years, I did this, uh, a year, a little over a year ago too. Like it was just a bad time to try to start selling microgreens. And then I waited till the season and man. When spring came, I couldn't meet all my demands, like spring, summer, early summer. And so I, I definitely think I can. And I've, I've run numbers on it. And I would just need a, if I, man, if I did a, a couple thousand pounds a week uh, for 25 weeks, I can make a, I can make a good chump, a chunk of money conservatively. And so could the farmers. So, you know, I, I definitely, there's different things. Like I've thought about my, my, the least thing, the, my biggest struggle right now is, Charles, like, I could probably open up to consumers, but I don't really want to deal with consumers. I'd rather deal with businesses. Uh, there's a lot of headache with consumers, just in my experience, whether it be selling sneakers, working at the farmer's market. The farmer's market's actually pretty cool, but, you know, selling phones as long as I did belly-to-belly -belly in a mall kiosk. And and so I'm, I'm pretty burned out on that. However, if there's... the the real reason why I would probably do it is to help out my friends in my community. And that way I'd probably do it because it's, it's, um, because I enjoy helping people, especially people that I'm close to like, uh, cause it, if I could help farm setters, my, in my local community, find a place to, to sell their stuff and basically have their farmstead pay for itself as a side hustle, which is, I mean, that's really what you have to do these days. And, I, and you know, uh, Gene, Gene, Log, Gene Logsdon talked a lot about it. Wendell Berry's talked a lot about it. And I think, I think that's, that would be the way where I'd, I'd go into with consumers. But I think that's down the road. I think right now, though, what I see is, is working with businesses. And then, um, and yeah, so it sounded like you were about to say something. Sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to ask you, about how many businesses do you think you could serve and how many farmers would you need to create the you know, production you'd need to sell to the 
for the cafes and restaurants for salad mix i don't think you know not not many i mean i got a couple different guys that have an acre maybe i'd pick up a third farmer just for salad mix um just for for protection like uh our you know joel i mean joel's like the guy i've been working with the longest and then uh another guy who, who listens to the podcast i linked up with he's gonna start in june farming because he's got his space leased out to another farm he's actually worked out a pretty smart deal um and then once once the farmer that's renting his land is done he's going to start doing greens um in the beds that the guy used so uh once that's done I, I mean i i don't think it'd be much i mean i could grow i can grow a ton of salad mix in my backyard just with the the methods that i've learned i mean it's not you know you're you're doing when you're doing small intensive farming i mean you can People are surprised how much they can produce in small areas. So uh, I would say I'd be fine with three. That was my goal for the first year. If I, I, I'd hope, I mean, it'd probably be good to expand, but I think at that point, if I can get the business big enough, um, it would be nice to just probably hire somebody else to do it for me so I don't, I don't have to deal with it. Like, but it all depends. Right. If I get bored with it, then I'll probably do that, or if I'm starting to get burned out with it, then I'll probably look to do that. But... If I'm having fun, I'm just going to keep doing it. I think that's, for me, like something I, I've learned from, from farming, and we, we've talked about this, and actually uh, me and uh, Greg Burns talk about it quite a bit. It's, and, and everybody in my community, if, if it's not fun, then stop doing it, man. Just don't do it. Like, we, you know, we, we, we live in an area, we live in a time where, I mean, you know, we, we do talk about bubbles. We do talk about some stuff. We talk about how... People need to learn skills, but if we look at why people don't know skills, it's because we, we do live in a good time, man. Like, yeah, a lot of it is unsustainable. Like, I'm not going to say that it's not sustainable, but we have so much liberty and freedom. I mean, like, I mean, you're, you're, I would consider you one of my best friends, Charles. Like, I, I talk to you quite a bit on here, but we've never even met, and we're great friends, and I, I'm looking forward to the day where I get to meet you. And, like, we live in a time where, where that's a thing. And that's a thing where, where I feel like I know a lot about you, but the only times we really talk are on a, are on a podcast. You know what I mean? And it's, um, we live in a special time, and I think that, you know, enjoy your life. I think that's the biggest thing. Like, enjoy your life. Like, try to monetize your life. Like, think of ways that – think about what you actually need. I think that's the biggest thing. Don't try to keep up with the Joneses, but think about what you actually need, and then just go from there. If you don't need a big house, don't get a big house. If you need a house and it makes financial sense for you to get a new house, then get a new house. But, you know, I think I just think people need to change the way they think. They need to to think. And I'm not going to say I'm some anti-consumer because, look, I, I buy shit I probably don't need. I still have my my flaws that, you know, whether it be a, a new miniature computer that I can plug into my TV or or a new something that I don't probably need, I'll, I'll, I'll probably buy it, and then I think about it, but I'm trying to get better at it. I mean, you're not going to be perfect at it right away, but, man, just, just work at it. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, you know, the uh, let's see if we can – I'm interested in your conclusions about the, um, you know, the connections we were talking about earlier in the, in the program about the gig economy where, um, you know, drivers – work on demand basically and um, from from consumers and from businesses and and the impact on um, bricks and mortar you know because it, and the, and my context for this is 
You know, there's this guy, Richard Florida, who I, I might have mentioned earlier. He, he's made a name for himself by saying um, cities are the future. Cities have the solutions. People come to cities because that's where the money and the jobs are. And so, you know, when we talk about rural and, and the city, I understand the benefits of being of having rural land or a, a, a homestead because it's a lot cheaper, right? The farther you away from a city, then the, you know the cheaper it is. But also, you got transport costs, and um, it's harder to connect to people. Where if you're in a city, then it's easier to get together. And so, it's it's a very it's very interesting because I can see bricks and mortar that are are not fun to visit. Um, they're gonna they can survive off the gig. Uh, delivery economy, like you're saying, there's 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 like cafes or restaurants where there's nobody in the place, but the proprietor is making a good living um, delivering food because his place is funky or it's not fun, right? And then other places, it's like you know brew pubs and and um, streets that have a lot going on, and you hear music and you there's a bunch of different places to visit, and then you go, wow, I want to go there. You know, I'm willing to get in my car, jump on my bike or whatever it takes to get there. And uh, but not every place is like that. So I, I see the, the potential yeah. for a lot of good to come of it. But I also see the downside for like um, like a lot of regional malls and stuff where, you know, it, it's just not fun anymore. So nobody goes to the mall. They're going to die yeah. and they're going to like bust them down. Yeah, I mean, there's shitty food at malls. You don't get good deals when you shop. Uh, yeah, why are they there? You it's have to like, be around yuppies. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's, it's like a habit. It it's is. It's like a habit. It yeah. is. I mean, I worked in malls for years, and it was it was always interesting, like, the different malls. I always preferred the, like, poorer malls that were dying. I always had the most fun there. And I always – people were easier to talk to. And, like, certain, like, man, the uppity malls, like – when I was in Dublin, Ohio. I remember I had this 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 dumb lady. Man, I don't want to. I don't want to be negative. Um, but I, you, you, I just dealt with a lot more annoying people. Uh, my conclusion is this, man. I, my conclusion is, um, well, Ohio because of Amazon, they're they're getting a pass, so we can even deliver beer soon. So that's gonna be fun. Um, and I think you can in some parts of California. Um, I think I could get beer on on Amazon uh now in san diego i could be wrong i think i was i don't think i had an opportunity to try because they're already stocked up but um yeah i I, it's gonna change i think it's gonna be good and bad so it's gonna be good because it's gonna keep small businesses alive it's gonna help even some small businesses thrive i think it's interesting to see and it's i always say this man like i immigrants always kick ass especially in places like columbus ohio because they put in the fucking work, man. They 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 do their research because they they have they don't have an option like them doing a business is like I moved here to this country to do this. So this is what I'm going to do. And then you know what I'm going to do when I'm not at my business? I'm going to drive part-time for Uber. I'm going to drive part-time for Skip the Dishes or part-time for Lyft. And they just hustle, man. They get on their ass, they hustle. And then of course, like I go to and, you know, an immigrant-owned restaurant, sure enough, I see all the tablets there. Like, there's multiple food courier services and even, like, some nice restaurants. Like, I'll go to the, the brewery district at, like, 8.30 at night when people just don't want to leave their house and they just want to get food from there because they like their food there. If it's convenient, I think 
you know, whenever you can give convenience, you're going to make money with convenience, especially in our society. I think that's the biggest thing. But so I think the good side is a lot of, you know, it's going to keep a lot of smaller businesses open. I think the bad thing is, is it's going to still, it's going to make it easier for people just to sit in the front of the TV and, and live a quiet life of desperation. <laughs> yeah. And so um, this, of course, sparks a lot of other topics because um, cities and towns that want um, that want a thriving commercial district, they're going to have to um, come up with policies and, and uh, procedures that, that work for both of these. Because like, you know, uh, if, if the parking ticket has been jacked up to 40 bucks so the city can, you know, rape people who, you know, missed their, uh, you know, were, uh, didn't, didn't get their quarter in the machine in time. Well, then you're going to, you're going to create a huge disincentive to go out yep. because it's like, man, I don't want to, I don't want to go out and get happy hour yep. and get a $40 ticket. Forget um, it. Unless there's Uber. But yeah. then it depends on is your, is your, is your city big enough for Uber? And, yeah. and and that's like the tricky thing. Like I, I um, I think man, it's 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 tricky. I think it's getting there. Like Youngstown finally got Uber. I was happy, but I mean, it's 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 so tricky. Like I I think Uber eventually will be everywhere. I I don't see why it wouldn't be. But they they just have to figure out a way to have offices in different locations. But uh, you know, that's that's the weird thing. So the the convenience factor works both ways. It makes it more convenient for you to go downtown get trash, not worry about getting a DUI and get an Uber ride home. Um, or And try to find parking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, sometimes even if I'm not going to drink, if I know it's busy, I'll just Uber it because I don't want to fuck with parking. I, I, I right. don't. Like, I just don't want to mess with driving around in traffic. I'd rather say, all right, you know what? It's busy here. Just drop me off here. I'll walk the rest of the way. And, you know, it. I man, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, it, we're not going to stop it. I think you, you just, I mean, there's always a positive and a negative, I feel like, but you know, hopefully it outweighs. I mean, hopefully, you know, during the week, people are just, they're just exhausted. They're going to go out later in the week. So, so, but I, it's weird. Like, man, so I just, it just kind of connected dots. So it's like during the week, I feel like services like what I'm doing keep businesses running because the people don't want to leave their house. Then once the weekend hits for the people that live for the weekends, the same services deliver these people to their businesses so they don't have to worry about parking. I think that's what's going on in Columbus. I don't. I can't speak on a, a lot of other communities, but um, I think in the end, I think it's just going to be good, a good thing. Um, but you know, I, I don't know. It, it also depends on how are these companies going to start paying. Like, I mean, I, I guarantee if Skip the Dishes starts cutting my pay doing this shit, like I'm not going to do it anymore. It's not going to be worth my time. Like right now, it's a pretty decent gig. Like. The further I have to drive it, the more I get in the delivery fee, and then I get a tip on top of it. So usually I, I average about ten bucks a ten bucks a delivery, and a lot of times it's more. But man, I mean, but I'm in Columbus, Ohio. So if you're trying to survive on that in the West or East Coast, that's that's gonna be a tough tough gig. Yeah, I, I like what you're saying that um, it, there's good and bad, but we can't stop it anyway. And so um, I think that it really boils down to, you know, if you embrace it, then you're looking for opportunity. And if you resist it and you fear for what you're losing, then um, you're not going to be happy. And, and, and what we're really talking about is to be a happy 
person, then you want to have hope and opportunity, and um, you, you're going to have to look at at um, that that side of it. And it's much more efficient, you know. Like I, I just um, I saw a study recently. Maybe you did too. Somebody did like a computer simulation, and if if everybody took Uber in like dense town and city zones, it would save like 90% energy and and traffic, because instead of you know the 10 people each getting in their car and getting out there and trying to find parking and all that, then like one Uber driver basically or two can then basically uh, take people where they want to go and um, reduce by like literally 80 to 90 percent the number of vehicles on the road, the amount of energy being burned. And so that kind of energy efficiency and time efficiency um, it's going to win. You, you can't say, I don't want it. I, that's a bad thing. No, it's going to win because um, if you can save that kind of time and money and energy, and um, that's, the, that's the plus side of, of, of a much more dynamic economy. So it's always, it's always interesting to hear you be, because you're engaged in the real world, you know? I mean, you know, you're slaughtering pigs, you're delivering food. <laughs> and, 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 you know, it's easy to just like, get into the abstract and then you listen to pundits on the mainstream media and you don't really learn anything because those fools never hired anybody with their own money. They've never started a business. They, they don't know anything about the real world. They're reading somebody else's account about it and then yeah. claiming that, you know, that they're experts. And there's no, there's no substitute for actually getting out there. So Well, it was interesting. So there's a couple things I was going to add to – Another way to look at it with what, what is potentially holding back that simulation is actually local law enforcement and possibly lawyers that are in the DUI industry because it is an industry. Like when I got right. my, I mean, so my physical control is what prevented me from getting an Uber, right? My, my cousin just got a DUI um, and, you know, and it was, I was, it was nice for me to be able to like, he humbled himself and sucked it up and was a man about it and got help from me and hopefully I saved him a bunch of money and it's going to be a better outcome for him but you know that I think Houston actually canceled Uber for a little bit because there was something with because they weren't getting as many DUIs that was the conspiracy but it, it makes sense but I I don't know I, I mean it you know I know for small towns like uh the way it works with a lot of lawyers like they'll they'll contract out those that, that prosecutor, and he works at a private firm, and he's getting paid by the hour, so he milks out every case. That's how it was for me. My lawyer just – my lawyer was great. Like, he laid it out. Like, this is how it's going to happen because this this prosecutor gets paid by the hour, so he's going to drag it out. I'm going to bounce it out to county, and the judge that's going to serve you, I'm actually friends with him. Um, so I'm going to make sure he – he's I'm going to make sure he gets the case, and then we're going to get a settlement. And I was like – Cool. So that's what happened, and then it took me 13 months, and but then I I didn't get a I didn't get an OVI in my record, so I could still go to Canada, which is great. Um, but with uh, another thought I had was when you say I get out and I see the city, like it's it's you know I, it's it's you know I love the I love Columbus, man. Like and then um, a part of me. Uh, what I really enjoy most about this food service is I'm going to parts of the city that I know nothing about. And I'm actually seeing these people and how they're living and, and, you know, and it's, and that's, I mean, that's, I'm big on that. Like I'm big on, 
on what what's around me like you know we live in a good city like i live in a good city but there's still areas that aren't so good but there's still people in those communities that are still you know have a positive attitude um one guy in particular yesterday was his cash order and man like he lived in a really lower income area and he came out and he smiled and he was happy to give me a money because he knew he tipped me more than what he said he was and it was i could tell it's kind of like a big deal to him and I was really grateful, and I made sure, I, like, I, I said, hey, thank you so much. Make it a great day. And uh, he just gave me, like, this really rewarding smile that I never thought I would get from delivering somebody's convenient food. And it was, like, uh, it was an interesting thing, man. Like, it, it, it was kind of really moving for me. I thought about it quite a bit. Like, this, he was a young kid. I'm sure he had a tough life growing up, and he probably lived at his parents' house. But he felt good about being able to independently order this food that he probably never would have tried before so i don't know i mean it might sound cheesy but uh it was uh it was a good experience for me yeah no i think i think what um it ties into what we're you know the broad themes we talk about which is you know where is our uh opportunity and um and happiness and, and you know as things um as the economy goes through and our society goes through these massive changes that no one can stop. And um, I will say that, you know, it's these small kind kindnesses, you know, that that's a, a kind of, again, like a cliche, but it, it certainly is, is part of what we're talking about with the community economy is, you know, how many good vibes do you get in like Walmart? I mean, there, you might yeah. get a smile there. Um, but uh, you're much more likely to get a smile outside feel, of. Nobody feels good when they go to Walmart. I don't care how much money I save. There's things that I know I can save money on at Walmart. I never feel good going to any Walmart. It doesn't matter where it's been, wherever. I know where everything is. I know it's convenient. I know it's going to save me money, but I don't feel good there. Even and it's even like it's not even because I watched some documentary like I. It has nothing to do with it. You just don't feel good when you go to a Walmart. And, yeah, I'm, not, and I'm not hating on people that shop at Walmart either because I, no. I, I don't want to do that at all because it not everybody – look, Walmart really does save like the average family $2,000 a year, and that goes a long way for a lot of people. So, you know, I'm not going to shit on that. Like people can – look, you can shit on the Waltons as much as you want, especially as kids, but don't shit on the people, man. Like they're – they're doing the best they can. I mean, sure, they could probably do better, but they're doing the best that they know they can. So, anyways, right. but it's the um, it's like the 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 kind of um, what we're talking about is making connections uh, that have been sort of stripped away by the government and and corporate America because everything once it's commoditized and then instead of a genuine smile like you described, then you get you know you get an employee who is instructed by corporate headquarters um to say something like thank you for shopping at engulf and devour you know or, or something like that you know and, and so a lot of our life is fake because um you know it's like we're we're told by our bosses to present something that's fake but it's expected and so um like i often talk about the value of authenticity which is that's what's scarce right i mean fakeness is like there's an abundance right it's yeah. cheap there's a, there's a fake um, fakeness is everywhere. The media, the government, blah blah. That's that's uh, there's no value to it because it's super abundant, just like marketing and advertising. And so authenticity um, becomes um, 
valuable because it's it's what's scarce. And so this gentleman you mentioned, you know, gave you a genuine smile, and it's like, wow, you know, this is what life is is should be about. And so, what to me, what we're really talking about is trying to develop and encourage and nurture and be part of a community economy where this kind of genuine um, expression and, and this kind of authenticity is the norm. It's normal. It was the way it used to be, but we've forgotten all that because our whole life has been uh, transformed by what I call like the plantation economy. You know, yeah. it's like the Walmarts and um, and uh, the telemarketing and, and, you know, you're calling some other country for tech support and, you know, all this stuff, there's nothing genuine there and there's nothing authentic there. So why I enjoy talking to you, Drew, is because you're, you're engaged in the authentic part of the community economy and you're trying to make a living in that. And that's, that's where the rubber hits the road. Yeah. And so that's, that's the value of our conversations to me. And I hope the listeners feel the same way. I think they do. I, you helped me, uh, get on my pulpit and express my actual views. Cause you actually asked me and yeah, man, I can't say enough, uh, before we have a nice uh, compliment fest here, uh, but I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you some compliments. Uh, yeah, man, like I, I've told you a bunch of times, man. I I don't think like our conversations really changed the direction of the show because it was like, you know, before I would just read your blogs and I was like, God, this guy's so smart, man. I should have. I I bought your book and I started reading. And I was like, man, I why don't I just get him on the podcast? And I was already kind of going that direction, but it was like there was um. You know, man, I'm, I mean, I'm a guy that sold myself short for a long time and I had a lot of limiting beliefs to work through and I'm still working through them. And, you know, I don't I mean, I, I probably still haven't fully realized the skills that I have or as successful as I can be. But, you know, you just got to keep working on it, man. And, and our, our relationship helped me has helped me see that. And it's you know, it's it's encouraging to have somebody who you look up to and respect say man keep doing what you're doing like i think it's great i think it's needed and um so you know i try to i try to do the same man i try to return the favor i mean i i you know anybody you know i i think anybody will tell you if if, if you hang out with me who you if you deal with me on facebook it might be one thing because i control and be an asshole on facebook because i think it's i think it's <laughs> funny because we try to in the in the place where it's so easy to dehumanize people we try to have serious conversations and you do meet there are a few rarities where you meet people and it's like it's really cool um you know i've met some cool people from facebook but you learn how to vet people but you know i'm the same guy that you're gonna i mean if if we if we meet up if you, seriously most people that have asked me to meet up with me from the podcast and i'm not gonna put this out too much i actually buy them a beer because i think i'm more excited to meet them than they are to meet me and I think that's cool. I mean, I think that's because I think it's cool that like when I started this, I seriously started my podcast because I was like, man, it's it's time to bet on myself and it's time to do this. And, and you know, four years later, here I am. I'm I'm like happily kind of retired from corporate America. And, you know, I'm, I'm living the life I want to live in an honest way. And I'm not necessarily where I want to be. But, you know, I've, I've been able to meet and and fellowship with people away from where i live and and have and and start a family with with pretty much uh like have people be extended family to me from from near where i live and we all met through the internet so i mean it's it's always like 
a catch 22 like the the funny thing is is it was like 10 years ago we used to say oh don't trust anybody you meet on the internet and now it's well i met the dude from the internet we got we got a lot of same stuff and now we're best friends and it's and it, and i think in that in 2012 when i started this show like at the end like that's when i started doing that and vetting people out and i and i really haven't been burned that much i mean i i you know i people definitely people have come in and out of my life but you know i'm i'm still i mean i i just feel so blessed and i feel so uh um fulfilled by the relationships that i've made via the podcast and via social media and and i think it's it's just you know i mean it, i i'm i'm just kind of blown away by everything and i guess that's all i got to say about that charles <laughs> All right. Well, that's a good place to end. We have a global network, but it, it allows us to make localized connections in a way that um, wasn't possible before. And I've certainly, uh, my life's been enriched uh, by the internet immensely. And um, I think a lot of people feel the same way. And it's uh, creating economic opportunities. And we're just in the beginning of that. You know, Absolutely. we're in the beginning. We're, I mean, like I often say, and I'll end on this note, we're in the fourth industrial revolution and, and it's kind of like the equivalent of 1820 in the original uh industrial revolution the first one with like steam engines and locomotives and stuff like that so you know we there's a lot of great stuff ahead of us but we have to embrace it and um and not cling on to the buggy whip industry you know or you know Gee, my job used to be collecting horse crap, you know, in the city, and now that now the horses have been replaced, and I'm I'm out of work. I mean, how awful and horrible! What a great it's analogy! All like, yeah. <laughs> what a great analogy! That's so true. That is so true. You nailed it. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I had to. It was so good. I was like, "Yep, there's no more horse crap picking up." So that's it. Yeah, the, the horse dung industry collection, the horse dung collection industry is done in the city and, um, and and we're all better for it. But the person that, that was paid by that initially, yeah, they're they're sad and bummed and um, lost and all that stuff. But, you know, there's uh, it, there's a lot of good stuff ahead. So um, let's. Uh, <laughs> well, before I let you go, something yeah. we didn't talk about. We're going to plug it right now. You sneaky devil, Charles, or you sneaky, I don't want to call you a devil, you sneaky guy, you're so humble, you didn't even say, hey, Drew, I have this new book out, and I started reading it, I bought it, um, it is part of the Of Two Minds Essentials, I'm a big fan of all of Charles' books, it is called Inequality and the Collapse of Privilege, um, there will be a link in the show notes along with the links, uh, the free links of the audio books, um, so guys, make sure you check that out. Go to his blog or his website, uptominds.com. You can subscribe to his blog. Uh, if you want to read it on your mobile version, he only puts one ad in there for you. So you don't have to deal with ads and or subscribe to Feedly, Outlook, get 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 with Charles's stuff. Um, and Charles, thanks for coming on the show, my man. Hey, thank you, Drew. It's always a pleasure. And we, we finally caught up. I mean, we only did two hours before and we had a lot of <laughs> extra stuff to catch up on. So Awesome, man. Well, it's a good time. <laughs> All right, guys, thanks again for listening.